Welcome to Weird Studies, an arts and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martell. For more episodes or to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. Hi, welcome to Weird Studies. This is Phil. In this episode, our intrepid production assistant, Meredith Michael, is back on the mic, joining us to talk about Hayao Miyazaki's 2001 film, Spirited Away. If you heard Meredith in our story swap episodes, numbers 118 and 119, or at our live show at Illuminated Brewworks in May 22, you know you're in for a treat. Meredith is a doctoral student in the musicology program at the Indiana University Jacobs School of Music, writing a dissertation on musical mythologies of outer space in the 20th century. I think the first conversation I ever had with her was about Jane Austen, and it immediately struck me that she was possessed of a literary imagination of a sort unusual among musicians, effortlessly projecting herself imaginatively into the spaces and places that novelists fashion in writing. In our conversation on Spirited Away, Meredith brings that same sensitivity to imaginary spaces. Spaces no less real for being imaginary, I might add. Early on, she raises the question of Spirited Away's narrative messiness. The film is somewhat notorious for a plot denouement that feels like a hasty improvisation. And this sets us off on a long chase after the distinction between plot and story. To that end, I quoted something that the avant-garde composer Robert Ashley said on the subject, and I'd like to take this opportunity to recommend watching Ashley's TV opera Perfect Lives, which can be found in its entirety on YouTube. Here's a little audio clip to give you a sense of its sound world. Not asking too much. This time there is no fear, no shame, no caution. My heart is so full there in the back seat of Twain. This time I throw myself at the feet of your recklessness. I learned finally that's something, and to give the blessing. What are we doing here? Next thing you know, I hear another voice say, under the eyes of God and all his messengers and the governor of the sovereign state of Indiana, who shall witness this holy thing, this matrimony, this elopement, more even holy than you think, asshole. But if this seems decontextualized and incomprehensible to you, don't worry. It sounds like that even when you listen to it from the beginning. I kid. I actually love this music, and I urge you not to write it off as mere postmodern foolery. There is a method to Ashley's madness, and if you want to know what it is, I would recommend reading Kyle Gann's book on him. That's where I found the quote that I read on the show, which I would like to gloss a little here so as to make the following conversation easier to follow. I should mention that the text I was reading from is somewhat abridged and riddled with ellipses, which doubtless contributed to some of my puzzlement at Ashley's meaning. As I was unable to consult Ashley's text in its original form, I might be missing something important in my interpretation. But I'm going to venture that at bottom, Ashley is asking us not to confuse a story with its telling. In Perfect Lives, Ashley approaches his story, about an elopement and a bank heist in rural Indiana, the way a cubist approaches a vase of flowers, as an object that can be turned this way and that and perceived along a multitude of planes and angles. 
Ashley suggests that a conventional movie deploys its heavy machinery of plot to move the story around and give it a certain sense, and we are fooled into thinking that that's the story. But it isn't. And Ashley suggests that it's in the ridiculous and impossible medium of opera that we can approach the mad heart of a story. In the conversation that follows, you'll hear us make much the same argument about Spirited Away. I'll close with a couple of announcements. First of all, JF is going to be offering a six-week course on Shakespeare's Macbeth, starting March 14th on NeuroLearning. JF describes it as, quote, an almost reckless delve into Macbeth's prophetic, magical, and philosophical depths. Almost, huh? I'm going to go ahead and predict that it will be fully reckless. Sign up now to watch JF spiral into madness next month. It should be a lot of fun. Patrons get a $25 discount on the price of admission by using the link you can find in JF's announcement on the Weird Studies Patreon. Second, I am launching a beta version of my long-promised Ring Cycle podcast on the Weird Studies Patreon. At some point, I will give it its full public launch at its own site. already bought the domain name ringcyclepodcast.com, just have to build the site. And I'll make sure it's available in the usual places, Spotify, etc. But for now, it is only for our $3 and up patrons. So if you're a degenerate Wagnerian, and who isn't, you'll have to head over to the Weird Studies Patreon to get your fix. Okay, that's quite enough of that. On with the show. good movie yeah that's it it is a good movie. yeah <laughs> that's the show folks <laughs> it's awesome go watch it bye yeah. <laughs> <laughs> why are you wasting your time here mm-hmm. well this came up uh a few weeks ago can't remember when in the production discord meredith you said that you and gabe were watching spirited away and you had a conversation about like do you think that phil and jf would ever want to do spirited away on weird studies and you guessed that we wouldn't yep Aha. and so i think it's possible that we are doing this topic just to spite you <laughs> or maybe it was all a ploy for me to get you to do it reverse yeah, psychology exactly. <laughs> it worked <laughs> i had no idea that this happened so i obviously i just wanted to do it it's a weird movie I mean, the thing is that it's a little bit like uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, maybe, or Silence of the Lambs, which are films we've also done, which I think they're popular enough movies. And given the generally obscure kind of fare that we most often lead with on this show, maybe you'd think, oh, that movie's like just too successful or too well-known, too normy. (laughs) <laughs> to do, but uh, we've talked about this in the past, how sometimes like very well-known movies, in fact, are the absolute best possible examples of the kinds of things we, we like to talk about on the show. I've always thought that about Spirited Away, which has got to be in my top five movies. It, it's seriously one of my absolute Mount Rushmore shortest of the short list of favorite films. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Meredith, when you expressed the thought that you didn't think we would do this movie. I was like, I need to prove 
the fiery ardor in my heart when I speak of Spirited Away. I mean, I definitely think it's weird. At least the first time I saw it, I didn't know what to make of it. This was a number of years ago before I was into weird stuff. And I watched it and I was confused by it. And I later kind of analyzed like why I was confused by it. And I think it's because it doesn't conform to the kind of Joseph Campbell kind of arc plot that most like popular fiction and films that I at least am used to tend to do where you have this kind of plot logic where one thing follows kind of naturally from the next. Something happens and then it causes something else to happen. Yeah, there's a kind of causal sequence. Yeah, which builds up to a climax, of course. And then you have the denouement where everything kind of gets resolved and you go back to baseline. And this one, it has a very different trajectory. And I think that a lot of the Miyazaki films that I've seen kind of conform to this as well, where mm-hmm. you spend a lot of time just exploring the world, just taking a lot of time to look around and just sit there, like when they're on the train. Mm. They're just sitting on the train, you know, waiting for the stop, it's slowly getting dark. You have this lovely music, passengers get on and off, and that's not really adding to this kind of building tension toward the climax of the plot, which happens like in a few minutes right at the end. Mm. Yeah. And it's almost like the plot has its own fate to it. Mm-hmm. And mm. the events of the story are, I don't know how to make sense of it exactly, but maybe I'll come back to this. That resonates uh, strongly with me. In fact, it's something I've often felt watching Japanese film in general or reading Japanese novels. I think that just culturally, there's a difference in how storytelling is approached or conceived and what stories do. At the same time, I think at the macro level, you could argue pretty robustly that there is a kind of Campbellian arc to Spirited Away, right? She's reluctant to move into a new town. She undergoes a series of ordeals and stuff, and there's a kind of coming of age, and then she's ready to move. So at the very macroist level, yes. But then when you're in it, it doesn't feel like that at all. And yeah. you have this kind of meandering exploratory thing. I have a kind of, th- I have a theory about that. And I don't think it's an East-West thing necessarily. I think it's more of a, it's more of a time axis, like how stories used to be told as opposed to how they're told in the industrialized West specifically. One of the other stories I thought of while watching this and then kind of looked into a little bit again today is the story of Psyche and Eros from, uh, Apuleius's golden ass, right? And there's a reason why that story, but we'll get to that maybe later. But what I found reading that story again was the same thing, this kind of meandering quality to the plot. In a way, it's an absence of plot. There's no plot machinery. There's kind of an emergent plot through this series of strange occurrences and encounters. And I mean, there's different ways of analyzing that, I guess. But one thing that struck me was that in Spirited Away, I'm going to be a, like, a little Hegelian here. You know how like even in a, like a modern screenplay writing kind of guide, you'll have the idea of opposites. So you have villain and hero, and then you'll have like the good mother and the terrible mother. All these archetypes break down along this kind of like bipolar kind of axis, right? And th- that's something that people have derived from reading myth. They find that there's light and darkness, law and chaos, good and evil, and these things But in the way that myths were written or told and then finally eventually written, I find that those opposites are present in the same 
mythemes and entities in the story. So for instance, in Spirited Away, you learn at, at one point that, what's her name? Yuruba, the kind Yubaba? of- um, Yubaba? Yubaba, Yuruba. <laughs> Yubaba, the, uh, who runs the bathhouse, the magic bathhouse, has a twin sister. But the twin sister doesn't look, she doesn't even wear different clothes. She looks precisely yeah. identical. Exactly yeah, the exactly same. Exactly yeah. the same. To the point where you're like, well, it's the same character, you know? The ambiguities that you see in Yubaba before you learn she's a twin start to make sense once you learn that she's a twin, such that you might think, well, we've been meeting both Yubabas all along. There's a kind of like embrace of the ambiguous that's part of the world itself. <laughs> Whereas in Star Wars, all the opposites are there, but they're really kind of reified in separate entities, right? And that's maybe one one of the things that distinguishes a modern story from a myth, whether or not the stories adhere to the kind of hero's journey or any other type of master kind of like monomyth or whatever. Mm. Yeah, I was thinking a similar thing about the characters, actually, which reminded me a lot of like Western fairy tales, you know, when the hero enters fairyland or encounters these fairies or gnomes or whatever. They are amoral, you know, yeah. they it's not like they're, oh, it's a demon. It's the uh, like embodiment of evil or it's an angel, which is like perfectly good. It's somewhere in between or it's something that's acting according to its own kind of interest or its own kind of. In this case, I feel like contracts are very important. Yes. Or, deals um, and contracts. Deals. Yeah. yeah. And so, I mean, I was thinking about the beginning of the movie when Chihiro enters the bathhouse. Everything seems monstrous. Everything seems terrible and like out to get her. And then at the end of the film, they all cheer when she like makes the right decision and yeah. is able to escape. But that doesn't erase the fact that they were going to cook up her parents and serve them for dinner without right question. Up, yeah, right up until like a few hours before. Yeah. yeah. And um, for all we know, all the other pigs are humans that wandered into this land and they're going to yeah. keep eating those, you know? <laughs> There's been no change in the moral structure of things. Mm -hmm. It's just that she's learned to Yeah, I know I love that. She's kind of adapted herself to this world. And so they've accepted her. Yeah, it's really that's actually really interesting. Yeah. I think that's one of the big criticisms that people make of this film is that the stuff that we expect in a screenplay, setups and payoffs, the effective causal machinery of plot is often just not there. So, you know, Meredith, you just came up with a perfect example of this. Seemingly unmotivated changes of heart, where Sen slash Chihiro goes from being like universally despised and, as you say, you know, the beings in this other world not only don't care about her, they actively seem to want to harm her. And then all of a sudden, the change of uh, uh, what, what, what professional wrestling is called a face turn. Right. Uh, all, of a sudden, all of a sudden being a good guy. This actually reminds me of a slightly enigmatic thing that Robert Ashley, who's an avant-garde composer, said about his operas. So like Robert Ashley is probably now best known for a series of TV operas, only one of which was ever actually produced for television. A piece called Perfect Lives, which I would love to do. Man, you think you know weird? 
You haven't seen Weird until you've watched Perfect Lives by Robert Ashley. It is one of the strangest goddamn things I've ever seen. I love teaching it because my students get so freaked by it. They think that I'm like pranking them. Like this is some kind of enormously elaborate Tim and Eric prank. But I don't want to get too much into what it is that makes Perfect Lives and Robert Ashley's TV operas weird. I just want to read this little thing that Ashley said about plot and story, pointing out that plot and story are not the same. And he is much less interested in plot than he is in story. And perhaps we could say something similar about Miyazaki. He says, At the opera, I am transported to a place and time where there is no disorder. There's disorder on stage, and it is called melodrama. We don't believe it. This is important, that we don't believe it. We do believe what happens in movies. Therefore, opera can have no plot. It is foolish to argue that opera, any opera, can have a plot. That is, that the characters, in scare quotes, and their apparent, quote, actions, and the apparent, quote, consequences, are related in any way. Opera can be storytelling only. That is, that the storytelling happens on stage, and that musicians are making music in the pit, to reinforce the story told, is entirely coincidental. The story might as well be told at the kitchen table with a crazy aunt and uncle as the soprano and tenor. Now, there's a bunch of stuff in there that kind of doesn't make sense to me. The logic of it is a little elusive to me. So when he says we don't believe the melodrama we see on stage in opera, but we do believe what happens in movies, therefore opera can have no plot. I don't know exactly what the hell he's saying. <laughs> but basically, when he says that opera is, can be storytelling only, and that plot is characters and actions and mechanisms. In other words, you know, setups and payoffs of the sort that we're talking about. Setups and payoffs of the sort that we often find missing in Miyazaki. Ashley would say, well, that's plot. That's machinery. And what I find interesting about Ashley's statement, he's like, that's not believable. Plot isn't believable. It's just machinery. What you believe is story. And story doesn't need plot. It doesn't need all that mechanism. It could be told any old way. It could be told like by a mad ant at your kitchen table or whatever. Mm -hmm. It could be told totally out of order. It seems to me this is a way of getting at something that maybe if we could turn this a little bit, we could call it like artistic truth or mm -hmm. something that Ashley is after, that for him, artistic truth is on the side of story. Plot is a contrivance that we can't really take that seriously, even if we feel that we need it. I don't yeah. know. What do you th what do you make of all this? I'm trying to like sort through what exactly he means by story. And then like when you said the part about the aunt and uncle at the kitchen table, yeah. that just made me think. It is actually true that real life does not correspond to a plot. And so if things happen to you in your everyday life, then that must be expressed in the form of a story. And that story might not really be that important. It might just be like, uh, oh, today I was going grocery shopping and I saw that guy that I always see at the Home Depot at the grocery store. And then I finally asked him his name and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, okay, well, that's interesting. You had an encounter. Mm -hmm. Now, is that plot? No, it's relationship yeah. building. It's And story, I think, 
to me, it's told from the inside. Yeah. Whereas plot is a kind of outward organization of events. Oh, yeah. This reminds me of Bergson's famous distinction between Zuri and, and time as we think it. Like, life is story, but when you look back on a, part, a chunk of life, you organize it into a plot. In a sense, you could say, like, life is what it is. Life is much more like a dream than it is like a plot. Life is a series of strange encounters that follow bizarre laws that we don't quite understand. Laws of physics, but also laws of synchronicity and, and weird laws, the types of laws we like to, to discuss on this show. And, and then when you look back, you organize it in your head and you say, well, okay, this happened because of that. And then that led to this. And my problem is that, you know, it goes back to my mother, you know, like, like Freud was someone who specialized in giving your life a plot. <laughs> you know, that's kind of what classic psychotherapy does. It gives plot structure to your life. And there's advantages to that because it allows you to make sense of things. But you also, I think, always lose something there, right? You lose all the ambiguities, all the grays and all the strange shadings that make up the dreamlike process of actual living in order to make sense of things. And I think that in art, there's been personally, I had this conversation with Lauren Holt when I was at Atlanta. She's um, a teacher at the uh, the Galloway school I was at. And she was saying, you know, she doesn't like novels. She doesn't like plot. And I, I'm like, I totally get what you're saying. I think I've said this on the show. If I'm reading a book and I start to feel the gears of plot turning, I immediately lose interest. I can fall asleep at the most action-packed movie in the, the movie theater if I feel the inevitability of plot. Because what interests me personally, I think Lauren was saying something very similar, is that what interests me is the dream, the dream of art. Art as a kind of reconnecting me to the dreamlike nature of my actual life. Like, you know, that's mm. what you were saying. It's like it, life is much more like a crazy story you're aunt tells at the dinner table than it is like a well-ordered crime thriller. Uh, Which brings us back to, oh, I'm sorry, no. Meredith, please. Oh, I, I don't want to interrupt. No, please. Okay. I beg of you. Okay. Interrupt. Okay. We, should, we should leave all these apologies in. The, just let's so leave sorry. them in the show. <laughs> it's the most Canadian shit. <laughs> People get mad at me because I say sorry too much. They're like, why? You should move up here. You'll fit right in. Canada, the paradise. <laughs> the paradise is <laughs> like the national. Polite. The national sport is apologizing. Um, so I've been recently playing this game called Kentucky Route Zero. Oh, I love that game. Yeah, isn't that it? That game is so dope. It's fucking awesome. And JF, I uh, feel like you would absolutely adore it. Is this a computer game? It's a computer mm -hmm. game. Mm -hmm. Can't do it. Sorry. It's basically like a novel in the form of a video game. It is. It is. I mean, you can make choices, but your choices have no effect on what happens. And what happens doesn't really make much sense. It kind of just emerges from people having encounters with other people, people going down the road, people floating down the river and then seeing where they end up. And yeah. It's an absolutely wonderful game for many reasons. It's very atmospheric. I was thinking of this because you were saying, like, in real life, it's very dreamlike. And sometimes the stories that you tell just don't correspond to a plot. 
And so most of what you do in the game is one, you make choices about what people say to each other and what they're thinking. So really your choices don't affect the plot, they affect the inner life of the characters and how mm-hmm. their personalities emerge. And second of all, you can spend hours doing the most pointless stuff, just exploring the world, driving around the back highways of Kentucky, listening to the radio, which is mostly static. You can spend a long time getting the runaround at this bureaucratic office. You can read signs about bats. You can uh, <laughs> listen to this endless automated phone menu about this river called the Echo and the plants and animals and bird calls and do you need help identifying a strange sound? Press three. (laughs) Wow. And you can listen to this person's like 14 voicemails, which are just people telling anecdotes about how they learned to drive. It's just (laughs) so delightfully pointless. Yeah. And yet atmospheric. atmospheric. Yeah. Well, that's, that's what you need for atmosphere. Maybe you don't need to go get as radical as this this game you're describing decided to be but i mean plot comes at the cost of atmosphere i think that's for sure just a, a, one of those kind of basic truths if i were to write a screenwriting book it would start with no acts <laughs> no plot points <laughs> just atmosphere plot is at best just the clothesline on which you want to hang the atmospheric you know clothes <laughs> Um, well one analogy that occurred to me when i was watching spirited away is the distinction between vertical and horizontal elements or aspects parameters of music and this is a very imperfect analogy but if i were to try and characterize miyazaki's approach in spirited away it would be that he reminds me of a colorist composer someone like duke ellington or claude debussy somebody who will give you a chord like the harmony, the vertical alignment of pitches supporting a melody, right? Which is the horizontal, the linear aspect of the music. But that harmony, you know, someone like Ellington or Debussy, you'll be like, oh, okay, we got a seventh chord, but wouldn't you like to have a a ninth in there, maybe an 11th or a 13th, -hmm. and maybe we can chromatically alter the 11th, and you know, like, and you end up with what starts off as a very simple chord becoming this puff of mauve, you know, lavender scented smoke hovering in the air. It's shit like that that just makes me lose my mind. This is one reason why I love Wagner so much, because Wagner was an incredible colorist, right? And this is something that I love, absolutely love about Spirited Away. That sense of like a single moment, like a a chord in this metaphor here would be like the image. Let's think about the train sequence, which really is the climax of the film. It's the true climax of the film and not all the plot stuff that's resolved, as you say, Meredith, in a couple of minutes right at the end of the film, the train ride. So um, should we actually we'll get there after say you something your... about the plot? Finish what you're saying and then we'll get it, get to the plot. Okay. All yeah. right. So like, you know, you have a chord, quote unquote, the colors, the particular forms, like the fact that the train moves through shallow water and you can see the the wake it leaves as it goes through the water the particular sound of the music that kind of lonesome piano sound the piano echoing in a vast space kind of sound but it's really 
really gorgeous. If you speaking of video games, if you play Legend of Zelda: Breath of the Wild, it seems clear to me that the musical style of much of the scoring of that game is inspired by Spirited Away and other films by Miyazaki. But that's neither here nor there. But the point is, all these elements, visual and sonic, and what few words are uttered through that long sequence, that constitutes a chord, right? Something that is rich and dense with implication and mood. Mm -hmm. And so often with coloristic composers, you strike that beautiful chord, that beautiful harmony, and you just want to hang out there. Maybe forever, like another composer I really love, John Sibelius, like in the, his fifth symphony, where he will give you a six, four chord and just hang out there just, yeah. for a really long time because it's just like the chord is enough. It's this beautiful shimmering sound and feeling. And that's the art of the thing, you know? That's the, yeah, exactly. And what comes before is important insofar as it sets the stage for that moment. So that one chord will feel very different depending on what happened before. So it's not like the linear ceases to exist in that sort oh, of color. Oh, yeah, approach. absolutely. But it's the emphasis is on the, you say the vertical or your color is a good one because color evokes a kind of painting analogy where you can talk about colors and lines, the colors being intensive and the lines being the extensive part of the... I, I think of this in terms of intensiveness or intensity, like the intensity of the moment. You know, one filmmaker who who makes, you know, much more um, conventional films in a sense, they're still weird, but who is really a kind of colorist in this way is Quentin Tarantino. Yeah. I mean, regardless of what you think of his films, the films are about these in the parlance they're called set pieces right the plot exists in order to set up a set piece which is this one scene where it, it has tremendous verticality the classic example in tarantino is everybody's pointing guns at each other well we needed a lot of plot to get there right but the plot exists only to to bring forth this moment where everyone is pointing a gun at everyone else yeah. and it's colorism right it's this really intensive event moment where we almost forget everything that's happened before because it all comes down to this. And I think mm -hmm. that I'm hearing something like that in your description of like Ellington's, um, or is it Debussy you said? Uh, yeah, their, the their musicians music, like is, that, yeah. Yeah, which are really about the intensity of the moment. I mean, we've talked about Rothko a few shows back, and I think Rothko is another example of this sort of uh, a painter who does something very much like this, right? So in, and actually in Rothko, it's perfect because you always have, well, mostly of the time you'll have two moments on one canvas, right? Two colors. And each color has its own intensity, but that intensity is partially determined by the other color. So the linear serves or the horizontal serves the vertical as opposed mm. to the opposite, which is usually the case in conventional mm. art, I think.
But we should get to the plot. <laughs> now that we've established there's no plot, we should tell the Oh, there's a plot. <laughs> um, I'll start. It's a beautiful story about a little girl named Chihiro who is moving to a new town in Japan with her parents. She seems to be an only child. She's not enthused at all by this prospect of changing towns or by this they're actually moving. They're moving into the town when the film opens. And on their way to their new house, the dad takes a wrong turn and ends up on this dirt road and thinks, well, I must have taken a wrong turn somewhere. But then the mother points out their new house up on a hill. So he figures he can get to the house by taking this dirt road. And he then they end up in a very different place from where they expected to be. They come to a stop in front of this little temple statue of some sort, a kind of Janus-faced toad-like being that's uh, made of stone that's just standing in front of what looks like the facade of a temple, but proves to be, as the dad finds out, proves to be just plaster and it seems to be the entrance to a theme park. The parents decide they want to explore this place. Chihiro is very reluctant to do so, but the parents kind of force her and then they go into the theme park proper. And then that's when things start to get a little bit weird. So they start walking through this gorgeous field and then up through this kind of village that turns out to be all restaurants that seem to be all closed, except there's a smell coming from one. And so her parents find one of these restaurants that is actually seemingly open because it's full of just all sorts of food. And they immediately start eating the food. Chihiro is disturbed at this. And she doesn't want to eat any of the food, so she starts wandering off a little bit. And she ends up on this bridge, across from which is an old bathhouse. And mm. immediately as she steps onto the bridge, this young boy appears. And he says, you gotta get out of here before the sun sets. And this is probably one of my favorite moments of the film, actually. Because it's pretty clear at the beginning of the film that it's like the middle of the day. Like, it's mm -hmm. very sunny. And as soon as he says that you have to get out before the sun sets, you can see the shadows go across his face as yeah. if mm. like time has just sped up. And then she runs to her parents and her parents turn around and they're pigs. Yeah, they've turned into and pigs. And she sees all of these shadows start emerging. She's obviously terrified, runs away. She's trying to like get out like maybe they already left. Maybe that wasn't actually them. And instead of the beautiful field that they entered in, there's a river mm -hmm. that has emerged almost out of nowhere, a huge river. And so she can't get back to the gate. The young boy comes and finds her and uh, she learns that she's uh, becoming invisible. And so he convinces her to eat this seed that will allow her to remain there without disappearing. And he instructs her that she needs to go find, I don't remember the guy's name. Kam oh, Kamaji. Kamaji, the old, Kamaji. the old boiler man. Yeah. yeah. Who is an octopod. He's like this eight legged guy, an old guy with a bushy mustache and uh, like arms and legs all over the place. And so he, yeah, he's and he, amazing. And he's amazing. And the way he's animated is amazing. He is like running the boiler and simultaneously like grinding herbs to send along to various places in the bathhouse. Okay. The, did we even say this was a bathhouse? This is a bathhouse. Yeah. 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 
Yeah, so like to perfume the water that's being shunted to different parts of the bathhouse. Anyway, so he works there with a bunch of little sentient puffballs. They're like little bits of soot that have been treated with magic, so they help Kumaji out. Chihiro is supposed to ask for a job, and he's like, no, you need to see the boss. She goes to see the boss, and the boss is the main antagonist, the witch, Yubaba. And we discover that there is some kind of deal, and as has already been said in this conversation, the logic of this fairyland, the logic of this other world is entirely structured by deals, agreements, compacts. And even the apparently all-powerful Yubaba is also liable to contracts. She has to offer a job to anybody who asks for one. So in return for writing up a contract so that Chihiro is not just going to be turned into a pig and eaten, she steals Chihiro's name and leaves one character, Sen, that's her name. And of course, there's a lot of uh, precedence in world literature and the idea that your name is in some sense you. It's not just a representation of you that participates in your essence. If you give a stranger your name, you're giving them power over you. This is an old mm -hmm. idea, right? And in this case, Yubaba directly gains power over Chihiro and indeed everybody else who works at the bathhouse by taking their names. She soon starts forgetting her name, which is really an amazing scene when Chihiro, now Sen, realizes that she can't remember her name or has to be reminded. Yeah. She's enfolded into the logic of this place. I mean, it starts exactly. off being alien and scary. And as Meredith pointed out, Haku right away is sort of like, you're going to just disappear if you don't eat something from this world. Of course, the problem with her parents was that they did the, <laughs> it's the oldest mistake in the book. Don't eat the fairy yeah. food. Exactly. <laughs> it all would have been fine if they just hadn't eaten the fairy food, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, so now they're stuck. But the thing is that she has to eat the fairy food because now she's stuck there. And she really becomes assimilated to this place. She loses her old clothes and has to wear a uniform. And she has to become a different person in this world as well. I mean, the obvious arc, character arc that happens is that Chihiro starts off as a whiny, not terribly pleasant child. Is complaining about everything and doesn't want to go anywhere or do anything. Clearly unused to hard work. She's immediately put to work in the bathhouse and is obviously, you know, unused to it. But the big plot arc here, the big character arc is Chihiro goes from that somewhat contemptible condition to being this strong, compassionate, brave, adventurous young woman. And so exactly. she, and you know, in which respect Spirited Away is like any number of other animated shows for kids. Yeah. I mean, that's not exactly an unfamiliar story, a coming of age thing where you gain new insights about yourself and others, blah, blah, blah. Okay. I don't think the rest of the plot is all that important because we've gotten the kind of gist of it now. She works in the bathhouse she has to, there's a series of tests, right? At one point, this one character enters the fray. They call him No-Face. He's one of the spirits. Like, everyone in this bathhouse is a spirit. In fact, Yubaba explains to uh, Sen, who used to be called Chihiro, that the bathhouse is there for the spirits to replenish themselves. So we're talking about like traditional kind of Japanese animistic 
yokai or kami i think has a more a loftier connotation like these kind of like nature spirits that come to this bathhouse to to replenish themselves that's the idea that's why the bathhouse exists it, it serves them and well um, it exists to make you baba a lot of money she's very yes. clear about this she is yeah. all about the money but but they is it real money it. or is it just fairy money? It just seems to me like it's glamour. Like, mm. but, but you know, who knows? Who knows? Is Yubaba a human or is, she's not obviously not a human? Her head is about ten feet wide. So, <laughs> um, so it, she adheres to the logic of the place. But the point is that this is a bathhouse for monstrous looking spirits. There's a radish spirit which is particularly gruesome to me it's like a giant daikon um all kinds of weird things and at one point this the one spirit, spirit. Who, oh yeah that's a great scene yeah that's a great scene uh ends up being a river spirit like a river dragon but when it initially arrives at the bathhouse it's just it's a giant lumbering pile of shit is what yes, it is that's exactly um, what it, it ends is. up being yeah. just like very very polluted apparently yeah. and full of garbage it's so good that scene yeah. It's, so, it's good. so good. But anyways, we may get to it. But uh, this one key spirit, plot-wise, key spirit is this no-face character who's just, just this kind of like amorphous, black, phantom-like figure with a mask. Yeah, uh, a, a white a, mask. Like a, a no mask. Exactly. So if like you've a ever no seen mask, a no yeah. drama, uh, it's that kind of mask, yeah. Exactly. And she inadvertently lets it in to the bathhouse. And this creature really starts screwing with the functioning of the place uh, by offering everyone gold and then devouring everything in sight, including some of the bathers and staff, uh, <laughs> this thing. And essentially she's let this thing into the place. So Sen is responsible and she if eventually has to take care of the situation. And, and this among a, a series of other kind of ordeals are what eventually I think lead to her coming of age, right? That she... She learns how to become independent. And that brings us to like the, at the end when they're on the train, because at the end she learns So why do they go on the train? Yubaba has a twin sister. So the witch who runs the bathhouse, she happens to have a twin sister who looks just like her, but is her opposite, is very kind and generous and very much like a kind of like a grandmother, a wonderful, loving grandmother type character. But she lives at the end of the, of the train line that passes by the bathhouse. So at the end, Sen has to take the train and go see this woman to return to her an object that Haku stole. Anyway, it's complicated, but that train ride to me, the reason why it is, I think you're right, Phil, it is the climax. It's because she has to take the train all alone to this place. It's just simply the mundane. Not all alone. She has companions. She has her companions, yes, but she's the one in charge. None yeah. of these companions are, there's no parents, there's no authority figure around. She has to take yeah. the subway or the train on her own for the first time, which is the type of thing a 12-year-old girl would need to do in real life. She's doing what a girl her age is now expected to do, which is just to take the train on her own. And so it is a kind of climactic moment because she's sitting this in this place and she's all alone. The other people on the train aren't actual people. They're all shades, like ghosts, right? So mm. they're all kind of shadow people. And she's, uh, she's not all alone, as you said, because she has her friend, No Face, and this little hamster and this little bird uh, that she's made friends with. But uh, ultimately, it's this independent kind of gesture, this this act of independence that she performs in order to save the day, but also kind of become a full person. Mm. And I, I just think it's funny because 
for all of its meandering weirdness and its dreamlike nature, it is a beautifully clear story about uh, becoming a young woman, right? And it uh, inscribes itself in a tradition of storytelling that I'd love to discuss with you either now or later uh, of young girls who enter a dream world. It's like this archetypal type of story. And I don't know why I keep remembering that passage from Deleuze I've read about three times on this show about even a young girl in her dreams as a devourer. And um, <laughs> but like you think about Alice and Alice in Wonderland, Wendy and Peter Pan, Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz. Coraline, Labyrinth, Labyrinth, Pan's Labyrinth, and all this going back to the myth of Psyche. Psyche and, and Eros, I think, is all about that. It's this young girl who enters an other world where she faces a bunch of ordeals, which in their details resemble the situation she's leaving behind, the situation that brought her to leave this world. Wizard of Oz is the most obvious version of this. It's like the mean old woman at the, in the village ends up being the Wicked Witch. It's the same actress playing both characters. And you find that in Pan's Labyrinth. You find that in, in Coraline with you have the other mother and then the real mother. That's like doubling. Like all of the aspects of the young girl's life return in this kind of like magical garb and confront her at the symbolic level where in a sense, it's almost like Deleuze is right. And the little girl has eaten the whole world. Like everything's now inside her. It's a really interesting form of storytelling that I don't really, I haven't read anything about it. I don't know where it comes from or why it's always a young girl. No, I, I think that's, that's really interesting. I don't know much about this either. Um, I just thought of because of that idea that this inner world plot line is somehow weirdly mirroring the outer world issues. Yeah. And I mean, this is like a, a very interesting example of this because it takes place in a bathhouse for spirits like it's supposed to refresh and replenish spirits and like chihiro is a real person but she also has a spirit right and this is like what the whole point of the film is about is about building up her spirit and her inner self scrubbing her clean yeah yeah, yeah. Hmm. so like she didn't come there as a customer like she doesn't have to spend money she has to spend work she's got to do the work to get there yeah, so. she has to learn how to help others before, you know, like she has to learn service, right? That's one of the, I think, if you want to draw a lesson from this movie, it's that she has to learn how to serve something. Yeah, I mean, speaking of identity, can I take it in Please. a different way? Please. Yeah, go for it. I was thinking about the character No Face as kind of another example of this building your identity kind of thing, because I feel like that's one of the big things about him is that he isn't anything he doesn't mm -hmm. have a face he doesn't have an identity he's like basically see-through nobody pays attention to him and he does express at one point that he feels lonely and yeah. i think it's because partly because no one sees him and partly because he like doesn't really exist yeah. in a sense yeah and so i think like his primary like his one malformed desire is to be a person and his journey kind of starts when Chihiro looks at him and nods at him yes and recognizes him as an entity in himself mm. but he kind of goes about it the wrong way after that he gets into the bathhouse and then he mm. he sees what the other customers are doing he sees what is making people happy and gold he just he sees yeah, the gold. he sees the shower of gold from the river spirit that Sen yeah. has cleaned 
and notices that everybody goes bananas about it. And you could almost see him thinking like, oh, that's what people desire. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And desires are what make people who they are. So. Hey, I can fulfill your desires. Love me, please. And instead of like kind of figuring out what makes him happy, he just consumes other people's identities. So he like eats this frog guy. And then he becomes this like weird frog spirit thing. And he has, and he can the, speak. He has the, their voice. Yeah. The voice. Yeah. He has yeah. Their voice. Yeah. 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 And uh, eventually he just consumes so much stuff that he's just like immobile. And Chihiro is sent for to fix this. And she makes this like ultimate sacrifice by feeding him this medicine that the river spirit gave her to cure her parents. She feeds it to, to no face to get him to vomit up all of the stuff that he's eaten, which is a really disgusting scene. Um, yeah. Although I don't think she could have known that that's what would happen. It no. actually is really true to the feeling of magic happening, which is just sort of like something presents itself to you. Like this river spirit has given her this sort of green bolus. She feeds half of it to Haku and Haku is injured and on the brink of death. And she holds on to the other half and yeah, she was planning on giving it to her parents, but she sees that No Face is suffering. And she was like, okay, this situation is sort of like what you were saying before, JF, about like Quentin Tarantino, like all the plot mechanics that brings you to the point where there's a Mexican standoff where everybody's like holding a gun on everyone else. That's the term. I, I couldn't find it earlier. Mexican standoff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. This is something that you might recognize in like magical experience where you're like, whatever the plot was that got you here, you know, actual real world plot things, the mechanics by which you arrive at the the omen, the augur, the the thing in your life that seems to be kind of a message from somewhere else, mm-hmm. the synchronicity, whatever, whatever the plot mechanics that precipitated that synchronicity is entirely beside the point. Because the synchronicity presents it to you as a kind of a what now. And Sen, in this moment, is challenged to react to this situation. Not thinking like, oh, I'm holding on to this. I'm saving this, which is how we normally think. But like, here's a suffering being, and I happen to have a magical bolus. And Sen prevails. She triumphs in this because, number one, she acts out of compassion. And number two, because she doesn't think logically or in the kind of logical self-preservation way, like, oh, no, you're going to need that, honey. Like, remember, your mom and dad are still pigs. She doesn't think like that. It's just sort of like the situation is such that, you know, it's a magical situation that calls for a magical remedy. I need to give you this bolus. She doesn't know what's going to happen. This sudden eruption of vomit, delightfully gross scene. Yubaba just gets covered in vomit. Loved it. Um, Like, she doesn't know what's going to happen. Like, every other fucking thing that happens in this movie, she just has to go with it. She just knows in that moment she is challenged to act with the symbols, with the whole situation that have presented itself to her, and that's what she does.
This is a, a key aspect of the type of story that I'm talking about with these young dreaming girl stories. It's the same thing in Psyche. It's the same thing in Alice, right? Alice has to deal with each situation on its own terms. She has to figure yeah. out what is the thing happen? What is the set piece? And how can I get past this to the next one? It's never about like, what's my long-term goal or what's the ultimate, you know, what does one do? And there, there are no rules. The rules are made up on the spot. The story is generating its own kind of parameters. And the character, the hero or the heroine in these stories is the one who can adapt to each situation yeah. and see each situation as the whole. This is what's happening now. So her bolus, this thing she was given, yes, she's saving it for her parents, but she's going to give it to Haku, not just because she loves him more than her parents. That's not what the message of the film is. It's because she knows that if she acts out of compassion, this way of acting will lead eventually yes. to her freeing her parents. That's right. It's not a zero sum game. Like either this bolus will heal the parents or the parents will be pigs forever. No, it's like, if I do this, yeah. then... I'm being the type of person who will eventually save her parents, <laughs> you know? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, she has to have some kind of trust. Exactly, trust, right. Some right. In the world, in the universe. Exactly. And this is also what ends up hel helping her save her parents because, I mean, the, the last final test is Yubaba has turned a bunch of the staff into pigs and she presents these pigs to Chihiro and says... All right, if you can identify which of these is your parents, you get to go off scot-free. And Chihiro looks at them, and she just knows that it's none of yeah. them. And she has yeah. to trust that that feeling is correct, and it is. Yeah, it's brilliant. It's brilliant because it's, it is about trust. And I think that that's you know, that first initial you know, opening scene of her in the car with her flowers are wilting. You know, she was given flowers before she left her whatever town they lived in before. And now her flowers are wilting. She's mad at the flowers. She's not, you know, there's a kind of distrust yeah. of the world. And yeah, she has right. to learn how to trust the world on its terms. If you combine that, what we just said here, with our earlier remarks about the dreamlike nature of life then trusting the world is more than just trusting that the laws of the realm will hold and then justice will be, you know, uh, met. Or It's more like trusting a world that we can't understand, trusting something that is beyond our understanding. This is what's asked of these heroines, is that these are not trustworthy worlds, is what I mean. They have to trust a world that gives them no reason to trust it because it's so filled with illusion and deception and transformations and shiftings of all sorts. Mm -hmm. And she needs to trust it despite that. That's a move that most grown-ups can't make in yeah. the real world, to trust the world. And to instead of saying, you know, I was having this discussion yesterday with a friend about like, we touched on the idea of these mantis beings that Stuart Davis encountered, and he's been very public about it, and a lot of other people have encountered these mantis spirits. And it's like, well, what would Shihiro, um, how would she receive a report of mantis beings encountering people in our world? Well, she certainly probably wouldn't say, well, that's obviously just a whole bunch of bunk or that person's obviously insane or hallucinated or that person obviously encountered an archetype of the collective unconscious. No, like trusting the world means being open to the possibility that maybe Stuart Davis encountered a real freaking mantis person. What I mean is that yeah. in a world that can be that weird, trust becomes an issue, a key thing. 
Can you trust a world that is that weird? I think we do live in a world that is that weird. I'm not arguing that the mantis beings exist, but I'm arguing that they could exist. And the fact mm -hmm. we live in a world where such things are possible, how do you trust that world? It's not going to be in any kind of empirical way that you've figured out enough of the rules to trust it. It has to be a kind of trust rooted in a, a weird sort of faith, you know, a faith in the storied nature of the world and the fact that the world will guide you places based on the type of person you are in it, right? As opposed to whether you save the bolus for the right moment or not. You know, I, I don't know if I'm making any sense, but. This may not be developing on that any, it just makes me think of, well, I'm t I'm teaching a class on Orpheus operas right now, which this oh, cool. is a, it's a weirdly parallel kind of story. I mean, it's not about a heroine who goes to the spirit world, but it is about a musician who goes into the underworld, which is also kind of a weird place. I mean, depending on what who's telling the story, it can end up having more or less fixed rules or more or less morphous rules. But the one rule that he does know is that once he has his wife, he goes into there to rescue his wife who has died. Once he has her, he cannot look back. And I find it difficult to understand the logic of that, except that it just is a thing that he has to follow. And if he does look back, then she's lost to him forever. And so she calls out to him. She says, why aren't you looking at me? Orpheus, don't you care about me? Don't you? And like in some of the stories, actually, in most of the stories, he does look back and then he ends up losing her forever because it's in one sense, it's kind of this lack of trust. But in another, I don't know, there could be a, some other interpretation of what the point of that is. But it's also weird to me that at the end of Spirited Away, Haku tells her when she's leaving, don't look back. Mm -hmm. And she doesn't until she gets out. Is it because the power of the place will draw her back in if she looks back? Or is it because, you know, it, symbolically we could say, well, you have to look forward now. You've passed this test and you can't look back. You can't come back here. You have to move on to the next thing. Or is it simply that, I don't know, I've always loved that moment in Orpheus because to me it does, I, I mean, that's the way I've read it. I realize that there are many ways of reading it, but I read it as Hades gave you his word, right? And you, if you trust him, you will not look back. You will not doubt. You will know. You will trust that the deal will be carried out to the end. And it's the same as uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Um, yeah. In, in, in the Bible, you don't look back. I don't know. It's it's a very there are fixed rules in fairy, but they're always nonsensical, right? Mm -hmm. The fixed rules are completely arbitrary. G.K. Yeah. Chesterton gets into that in orthodoxy. Here's a thought. I mean, the low-hanging fruit interpretation here is that looking back, don't look back, that you're you remain stuck in the past, whatever mm -hmm. situation you're trying to leave. And that makes all kinds of everyday psychological sense. If you're trying to get over a bad breakup, you know, go no contact. Don't be all, you know, contacting <laughs> your ex and trying to see what's up, you know, um, checking them out on social media. <laughs> but there's probably other meanings that we could pull out of this. And one that occurs to me is thinking of Aleister Crowley, among others, Austin Spare did this also in the, his formalization of his sigil technique, the sort of magical prohibition on action sort of mixed up with desire, wanting things, lust of result, as Crowley put it. 
the idea is that a magical act isn't necessarily a supernatural act or something inexplicable and eldritch and weird. It might be a very ordinary thing. You know, Crowley is pretty insistent on this, that magic is actually a way of thinking about all intentional human actions. But a successful action is one in which it's motivated by desire. You want a certain end or outcome. But in the execution of the act, the execution has to remain pure of intention. The act is just an act. And I can prove it to you. I mean, or not prove it, but like I can explain this very easily in thinking about how if you're playing ball, just a game of catch with somebody, and if you get super in your head about catching the ball, if you get really intellectual about it, or if you, or if you're thinking like, you know, like, oh my God, I can't drop this ball. It'll be so embarrassing if I don't catch the ball, then you're probably going to drop it. You'll get all tight and tense and weird. You're looking back. Yeah. You're looking back. Yeah. yeah you're not. Yeah. The looking back to me is a figure of like a divided consciousness where in a moment you lose the, just the spirit of the act. You become divided against yourself and then you lose whatever it was you're trying to accomplish. You're falling out of story and into plot, right? You're falling into oh, Benson's oh, organized time. That's a wonderful way of putting it. That's a wonderful way of putting it. Oh, I was just going to say another example is playing music. This is a temptation for perfectionists. If you are performing a piece of music, if you mess up, if you don't do something exactly how you wanted to do it, you can't do it again. You have to <laughs> yeah, keep going. Right. You know, right. if you go, yeah. if you do it again, then it messes up the whole like musical flow of the whole thing. So I think maybe this is a kind of parallel to the the story thing you're talking about, JF. It can't be just, oh, I did each of these moments successfully at some point. You know, it has to be just a, a full gesture yeah. in itself. Yeah. Yeah, in fact, we're tying everything together here. The other thing was about, we're talking about colorist composers, right? Oh, mm. And verticality and the set piece and the intensity of the one moment. Well, that also comes into play because when we come to the Mexican standoff in the Tarantino film, there's no looking back. It's not like the plot, you were saying the plot, what came before becomes irrelevant. That's how you put it, Phil, I think earlier. Mm. Mm. It's irrelevant because it's all baked into the present moment. So yes. to look back would be to step out of the intensity of, the, of what's coming next, of what is before us now. And at that moment when she's leaving the place, the magic isn't in looking back and seeing this magical bathhouse in the background. The magic is in the world that she's now entering. That's the next set piece. And so it's almost like, yeah, there's this idea that falling out of durée and into kind of intellectual time, into digital, out of the analog and into the digital, when we look back, it's kind of like we're, we're, we're imposing an order on things which is absent in the actual moment of living itself. One thing that I just really wanted to talk about with no Face, I know we left him behind. Oh, I'm so a long glad we're ago. returning to No Face. I want to talk about No Face. But I think that he does make more progress than just making a mistake and then vomiting it back up. Because the moment where he really stops just following Chihiro around and being like, well, this one person noticed me and this is all I care about, the moment where he begins to actually 
seem like he's on the right path is after he is interacting with Yubaba's twin sister, and she has him and the other two little animal characters create this uh, hair tie for Chihiro. Mm -hmm. And so they have to go through this whole process of like making the thread and then braiding it together. And it's only when he begins to create, when he yeah. begins to make mm. something, that he's able to start making something of himself. Oh, what a great insight. I'm very tempted to break it all down in Freudian terms here with like Yubaba being the superego and um, oh, I guess Kamaji would be the id, but then what would no face be? The shadow, but that's a Jungian idea. That, that like the thing is that no face has, and I just realized that no, you said it, uh, he's wearing a no mask, right? From yeah. no theater. So no, in in the English translation, it has this weird synchronicity. No face. Yeah, he yeah. has a no mask. Yeah, he has um, a literal no. Oh God, I didn't even think of that. You're right. <laughs> so, but he learns how to work with others, right? He learns how to serve something. Just he basically learns the same lessons she learns yeah. ultimately. Mm-hmm. And then ends up staying, becoming a kind of familiar to, to Yubaba's sister. Yeah, it's a fascinating character. That's, I mean, that's the iconic character. I went to Comic-Con last year and there were tons of people dressed as no-face walking around. I guess it's a simple costume. I mean, mm-hmm. my best friend, Mark, who uh, I would say it is 100% certainty will never listen to this show <laughs> and has never listened to any these shows so i can just talk shit about my friend mark and he'll never find out about it um (laughs) uh mark (laughs) and i both loved this film and i remember at some point he was like that for him no face really helped him understand himself he never explained that comment but i totally resonated with it because i felt the same way that in a film which hardly any of the characters are even human and as we've said, a lot of the actions, a lot of motivations are, you know, fairy logic. It, a lot of stuff doesn't make sense. It's sort of funny. The most human and relatable character in this whole movie for me is totally No Face, this weird entity that is more like John Carpenter's The Thing than anything. Did, did, I, it, I sort of thought that this go around. I've seen this movie God knows how many times. This is the first time it occurred to me that No Face is a bit like The Thing. He, he hungers above all more than for food or for gold or whatever. Actually, I don't think he has any authentic appetites except one, he hungers for form. Yeah, form, yeah, yeah. And he takes forms, he plucks forms of behavior, forms of desire, bodily forms, he just plucks them out of his environment and tries and paste them together into a a borrowed form and it never works out for him. And to go with what you were just saying, Meredith, which is an insight I absolutely love, it's like in actually forming in making a form like just a hairband right uh, that that's actually the fulfillment of his is intelliki the word i want like a that yeah that little, his intelli his soul yeah, yeah. his his identity like uh, however he does create things he materializes things from the start but i think that's but part they're all of what, phony things fake gold. they're all they're glamour right mm-hmm. but the thing is this it's that if you want to read that character kind of mor- morally you could say that He's a character who does things for others in order to get something back, right? He's yeah. he's making all this gold so he can eat them. He's not thinking it through, obviously. He seems to be just act he's a purely reactive character. Yeah. Like he has no there's no plan here. He's not evil. He gives you gold and then when you get close enough, he eats you. Um and I think <laughs> that 
all too often in life, we give in order to receive. Uh, yes. It's very rare that we simply give. And at that moment where she makes that, he braids together that little hair hair elastic or whatever it is for Sen, he's making something just for her, expecting nothing in return. It's a gift. And it's the same thing she has to learn. Again, it's like it parallels how one becomes a full human being. It's learning how to trust the world enough so that you can give something away without expecting something, without it being transactional in any sense, simply for doing the right thing or doing something good. Yeah, It's a beautifully moral film, and I don't mean moralistic. Um, I just mean just connected to something fundamental that I'm reading. I'm not even reading it psychologically or even humanly. I'm reading it as a kind of fact about the nature of the universe itself. It's instructive ethically and ontologically. <laughs> that's, that's how I like my morality, ontological. <laughs> you know, No Face is a dread monster. Like, yeah. where he, the way on his own, before all the trouble starts, he's totally innocuous. And Sen understands this about him. She says, like, when she's going away from the bathhouse and towards the train station, and her friend Lynn is giving her a ride in a boat. They see No Face now having vomited up all the things he's consumed, including the people he's consumed who turn out to be none the worse for wear. Yeah. They see his form, which has returned to where it was before, just this slender shadow with a no mask on it. And Lynn is just like, why do you want him to go with you? Because Sen invites him along on her train ride. And he's like, he's, oh, he's all right. You know, he's like, he's good. Or he's not bad. He just goes crazy. Like the bathhouse, it just makes him crazy. And uh, that too, I find very relatable because if I go to a mall or someplace consecrated to consumption, I've never been in a casino, but I have a feeling that I would just melt on contact with a casino. <laughs> it, would just, it would just destroy me utterly. Um, like, I have a hard time being around that much mechanically stimulated desire. It just flips me out. And the idea yeah. that you would just go bananas and start behaving in a completely irrational way, eating people and consuming all the food there is and vomiting gold and I don't know, all this, all this crazy shit. Yeah, that... That that happens to me every time I go into a mall. When I was living in Montreal, I, I did some work with a company called Moment Factory, and they were doing a lot of a big immersive environments using really advanced kind of, at the time, really advanced projection, all kinds of technologies to create these really immersive environments, experiences. And um, so I was reading a lot of material that came out of M MIT, like mind of the market stuff and research into how to design a retail space in order to basically determine people's behavior. This is, uh, we all know this, you know, uh, uh, the way a supermarket is set up is in such a way as to capitalize on certain neurological structures oh, about human I have brains. a great example of this. You ever yeah. noticed how when you walk into a grocery store, the first thing that's there is produce? Yeah. And, and yet that's terrible because you buy all your easily bruised produce and you put it at the bottom of your cart because your cart's empty because the produce is the first place you went. And then you put like your big frozen ham or whatever on top of that and you squish all the produce. It doesn't make any sense practically, but it makes all kinds of sense psychologically because they want to give you a feeling of plenty. They want to strike an archetypal note of plenty that yeah. you walk in and you feel, yeah, that you feel the horn of plenty spelling out towards you with apples and broccoli and shit. 
Uh, yeah. Yeah. That case It's in also point. in order to, you do a good thing. You get all your produce and then you feel, you get licensed to indulge a bit for the rest of the of your trip. Fuck so it, I'm all getting the, the middle little Debbie snack cakes. Yeah, exactly. Because you know why? of course you I, get to the, yeah. the end and it's like, oh, What's one chocolate bar? Yeah. You know, yeah. Right by the- <laughs> or the mag, those, those shitty magazines. And, yeah. you know, like it's just the whole, the way the place is set up is it's an archetypal journey. You're journeying through the human psyche in, in a supermarket and the people who design these things know what they're doing, you know? And so we are determined by our environment. So when no face who has no identity yet is thrown into a bathhouse, he's going to go in full goblin bathhouse mode. Absolutely. You know, know, this is going to sound like a total, total stretch, but this really reminds me of Siddhartha, a Herman Hesse novel. Like he does the same thing. His whole thing is that he... He wants to find enlightenment, but he wants to find it by trying out different stuff. So the first thing that he does is he joins this group of ascetics and basically just starves himself of everything for a number of years. And eventually he's like, well, you know what I've actually been doing? Just avoiding myself. So at this point, he has emptied himself of all identity. So he's kind of like no face in that moment. And then he realizes, well, I can't do that. So let me just go experience the world and then I can learn through experience. But what happens is that he gets caught up with this uh, like merchant. Yeah. And he's like, I don't actually care about this stuff. But slowly he gets corrupted by all these pleasures, by all of this like money accumulation and stuff. And eventually it climaxes at this moment where he just becomes so disgusted in himself that he just like wants to existentially vomit. Yeah. He runs off. He has this moment where he experiences this ohm and then falls asleep. And he wakes up having like spiritually rid himself of all of this accumulated filth, essentially. And then the, his first thing is, look at this beautiful river. Mm. I love this river. I want to trust this river. Yeah. And that's his like He's, big turning point, I think, in the book. Doesn't he end up spending the rest of his life by the river? Yeah, yes. he kind of gives yes. himself over to the to this world, to this mm-hmm. world, to, to the, you know, it's funny how hard it is to see the real world, how much of ourselves we see in each and everything. Jung is is all about this. Your shadow, you project it onto everything. So you don't experience the world. You're experiencing your own inner world, a little bit like those little girls in those stories that go into the other world and find all of the problematic aspects of their actual lives these monstrous forms. I think most of us live in that kind of dream. And to be able to see past that, to look at the real world, to look at a real river. If we were to see a real river, we'd experience something like a kami of the river, a kind of spirit of the river. We, we, if we could see the world as it was, we, you know, it's Blake, you know, to see things as they are, infinite. We would be blown, we would be enlightened simply by sitting beside a river. But of course we- the Bloody plot gets in the way. Yeah, because, yeah, it's all plots, no story. Which, by the way, speaking of plot, I mean, one of the things that people find unsatisfying story-wise about Spirited Away is that the conflicts don't really resolve the way we expect them to, where there will be a showdown, a confrontation. There's never really a confrontation or showdown between Yubaba and Sen, Yubaba being the primary antagonist. Their conflict just kind of disappears 
and is diffused to some extent by the figure of turning of splitting you Bob into two figures a a mean yeah. one and a nice one and so the conflict just kind of goes away same thing with no face there's this i mean a moment of serious badassery in this movie like when sen kneels resolute scared as shit but resolute and faces no face who's swollen to this vast frog-shaped blob of appetite you know it's the size of a freaking sauropod huge monster staring down at this little girl who is kneeling quietly in front of it it's such an incredible figure of confrontation but the way that's diffused is simply like she runs away and no face pukes until he reverts to his initial form the tension of that moment goes out of the scene like air out of a balloon that you blow up and then let go of that's another lesson for life though most exactly. problems just go away if you just ignore and them this is what i'm <laughs> this is what i want to say this way i mean apparently i there, I, I looked at the bfi film guide to Spirited Away, which is by Andrew Osmond. And apparently, according to this book, Miyazaki just finds a lot of those kinds of resolutions of conflict to be hacky and played, like just kind of boring. And for him, mm -hmm. it's just more interesting that somebody might have a change of heart or somebody might go through some stuff, some transformations and simply arrive in a different place where the tension between two characters would be resolved simply by the fact that those people grow and change yeah exactly which is you know that's a story from our lives but that ain't plot if you enjoyed this podcast consider subscribing to weird studies on your favorite podcasting platform you can also follow us on twitter visit the weird studies subreddit and, of course, support us on Patreon. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel, and the show is made with the assistance of Meredith Michael. Thank you for listening. <laughs>